Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Jack, great to be able to be with you and get caught up in terms of your views, because I think that there's a real um, debate going on in the market in terms of the bulls versus the bears. There's Plenty of reasons, I think, to be bullish, just because I think we've got so much liquidity, but there's also, of course, concerns regarding peak growth and the variance and how all of this will play out um, in terms of policy, policymakers, and, and what that means for the economy. So um, I, I think from a macro top-down perspective, let's hear how you're looking at the world today. Sure. Um, yeah, I, you know, from big picture, let's, let's start with valuation first and foremost. Uh, and valuation is unfortunately very expensive. Um, you know, if you look at the CAPE ratio, you look at price to sales, vir virtually every metric. And I'm not just talking about U.S., I'm talking about most global markets. Maybe you can find, a, you know, a few un unturned stones in the emerging world. But generally, uh, equity markets are pretty fully valued, in some cases, pretty expensive. Now, that said, of course, valuation is a terrible timing tool. And I wouldn't use valuation unless you had a time horizon of seven years or longer. Um, so we can check a box and say, okay, valuation expensive. The economic backdrop, meanwhile, is great, um, at least near term. Um, you know, we're off to the races here in the U.S. Um, obviously, we're now uh, watching the Delta variant. We're seeing, um, you know, many of our trading partners internationally um, lagging behind in vaccinations. You know, most notably uh, Japan, South Korea, uh, uh, Mexico, all still have vaccination rates below 20% of their populations. Um, and so we'd like to see that pick up so we can get this reopening going. And even here at home, um, certain states, uh, we're seeing lagging vaccination rates and, and we're now seeing infections pick up. Um, the uh, third point, in, and that's liquidity, uh, enormous. Um, you know, we've never seen liquidity like this. We're seeing real rates at more than 1% uh, negative. Um, banks and lenders are tripping over themselves to put capital to work. Uh, you know, everyone's looking for yield. And so, you know, yields and spreads have gotten compressed. Um, and so anyone looking to raise capital um, should find a, a pretty easy, have an easy time doing it, whether you're a business or consumer. And that's really what I'll call liquidity, the circulatory system uh, of, of financials. And, that, that, and you're right, that's great. Um, investor psychology, uh, probably, you know, a little on the bullish side, maybe there, we got a little ahead of ourselves, a little, you know, um, over our skis somewhat in bullishness. That's pared back a little bit. I don't think we're at extreme. So I think the market can keep going higher. I wouldn't call it a wall of worry necessarily. Um, but certainly, um, you know, I would say most uh, investors, uh, if you look at polling data and some other things are, are sanguine, but, you know, not necessarily ebullient. And then, of course, lastly, technicals and momentum still pretty powerful. So putting it all together, it's, you know, the path of least resistance is higher, um, but longer term investors uh, may want to start comparing back some of their risk. 
Okay, so a lot there certainly to unpack. Um, why, why don't we first start with the variants because and, and the vaccinations? Um, it's interesting to me that uh, it's almost as though the vaccinations, it appears in the United States, has stalled out. And perhaps that's because a certain percentage of the population will never get vaccinated. And I, I wonder what that might do or what kind of impact that will have in terms of policy decisions, because if that's the case, and that's always going to be a significant risk out there in terms of the reopening trade, I, I do wonder a little bit if the reopening trade can continue to, to work, but maybe at a slower pace, and some of the stay-at-home names will continue to work. It's almost like the slow moving along of both aspects can work in the market. I, do you see it that way, or what, what kind of impact do you see this having? Yeah, so you know, from a market impact, you're right. You're seeing this tug of war between kind of the stay-at-home growth quality names, uh, you know, the Netflix and Googles and things like that, uh, you know, against a lot of the reopening names, the airlines, the hotels, the cyclicals, the industrials. Um, I think that um, generally the, the the investor thinking was, okay, there's this variant out there. It's impacting the the unvaccinated, these people have a choice to either vaccinate or not. Uh, we're now learning that perhaps employers can require um, vaccinations uh, of their staff to, to come into the office. So I think from that side, it, the, the, the thought was we could perhaps have two economies, so kind of a vaccinated economy and then an unvaccinated economy where vaccinated likely are concentrated you know, in the, the cities anyway, and the unvaccinated would be more in the rural isolated areas. But now we're encountering these breakthrough viruses where vaccinated um, people can get COVID, maybe not as severe, but it's certainly a risk. Uh, and that's really started to set the market back a little bit that perhaps we can't run on this kind of two-stage uh, recovery plan. Hmm. So what then does growth really look like um, in your view for the next 12, 16 months? Yeah, so I think growth, uh, you know, does probably peak this year. Uh, you know, it has to, right? I mean, we're, we're looking at 9% of real GDP growth this quarter, uh, maybe 13% nominal GDP growth uh, for Q2, and, and even, you know, probably 10 uh, nominal uh, growth for next quarter. So clearly, we're peaking and cresting at this level. But I think that, um, you know, real GDP growth next year probably still, you know, above two and a half, closer to 3%, which is still not a bad longer term trend. Uh, I was a little concerned that Goldman Sachs reduced their equity forecast for 2022. I think they're calling for one and a half to two and a half percent growth for next year. So that's, you know, that's a pretty big downgrade. Um, mm -hmm. But for, for right now, I would say, um, you know, I, I still think we can get to that 3% growth rate, which is a healthy number. Um, really, the, the wild card is going to be inflation. Uh, and I still believe inflation will be more persistent than we believe. Uh, right now, the inflation that we're seeing is, is not inflation that the Fed has caused or can be controlled by the Fed. Uh, and that's because it's supply disruptions, right? If you look at used cars, you look at hotel rooms, you look at airline seats, you know, things where there's really just a lack of supply. Um, and um, and, and that's not something that lower rates can, can manifest or, or even maybe the, you know, higher rates can probably quash. But I think the Fed realizes that there isn't a heck of a lot of control they have over the inflation that's out there now. 
I think what happens though is, we have to keep in mind, at least US CPI is dominated by housing. Nearly 50% of CPI is housing. And mm -hmm. when we're seeing housing prices now, um, median home price, I just saw around 500,000. I mean, that's up from about 350,000 not long ago. So housing prices are, are really high. My guess is that translates to rent. And the calculation of owner's equivalent rent really, I mean, it, it's half of, G, half of CPI. Uh, and then you add another 15% for transportation. And I think we're going to see some persistently high inflation numbers. So you know, I worry that we get into an environment where we've got, you know, call it two and a half to three percent real growth, and we've got two and a half to three and a half three percent inflation. Uh, then what do you do? Right, and and I saw your presentation, and you you bring that up, um, and and it does have interesting implications and some complications, I suppose, for uh, you know getting return on your investments and and your money. Yeah, that's it. So, you know, one of the things that we've we have to be thankful for for the last 10 years uh, is valuation expansion. I think that I don't think investors realized how much performance we got from valuation expansion. So let, let's break it down. You know, as an investor, you're really only entitled to two things, right? You're entitled to earnings and you're entitled to to dividend yield. I mean, that's really all that, that companies that you own produce for, for investors. There is one element. If you can sell at a price higher, at a valuation price higher than where you paid, you're going to get some extra return. And that's really most of the return that we enjoyed over the last 10 years was from valuation expansion. So if you go look between, say, 2010 and 2020, the S&P 500 cumulatively returned about 270 percentage points. And 170 percentage points of that was valuation expansion. So another 100% was from earnings and dividends. And valuation expansion is purely and simply a function of interest rates. As interest rates drop, that means the earnings yield can decline. That means uh, the reciprocal of the of the earnings yield, which is P over E, which is the PE ratio can expand. And so if we get into an environment now where in interest rates don't decline or maybe even rise a little bit because of this inflation, what I'm arguing is, okay, let's, let's forget about valuation compression. Let's just take valuation expansion off the table and say, okay. what happens to the market then? Well, okay, we're gonna get, you know, a lower trajectory, it's going to be a lower returning market if we don't get valuation expansion. However, it also changes the dynamic of what sectors you want to own because tech, you know, because you have to pay so much for earnings and uh, tech doesn't have much dividends, the return uh, that uh, that would 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 uh, migrate to investors without valuation expansion is pretty low. Um, whereas Industries like financials, uh, industrials, you know, kind of the, the sort of the back to basics type industries do well because earnings yields are higher, right? The PEs are lower, mm -hmm. dividend yield is higher. So I think we're going to enter an environment where it's kind of a back to basics, uh, yeah. bricks and mortar type uh, investing scenario, unless, of course, we get breakthroughs in technology, which can certainly happen. And then and we get um, some kind of uh, uh, you know, huge productivity gain. But 
But aside from that, um, I think investing in kind of the, you know, Main Street, um, the, you know, the industrials and the banks and, and sort of the, the basic stuff, the brick and mortar stuff, I guess I'll call it, versus the virtual stuff, may, we may be better off over the next few years. Right, which I can certainly appreciate. And I think that, you know, some people have been thinking that might be the right call for some time now, Jack. Uh, And yet, you know, so often, again, we see the market leadership really surrounding some of those big tech companies and and obviously some of the semiconductor companies, that's they're cyclical. So I'll put them aside. But but I do wonder, though, if we aren't in a little bit of a new paradigm just because we've become so dependent on technology that the apples of the world, Google's, Facebook, um, you know, maybe Twitter, Netflix, that those will still be the dominant players. But then at the same time, you know, I lived through the te- I lived through the tech boom uh, bust, uh, you know, doing equity research at William Blair, building these, you know, models uh, in 1997, 98. And then, of course, it all, you know, uh came about the, you know, on a negative side after the, after the boom bust. And, um, and, and, you know, those, those big tech companies fell and fell for 10 years. But I, I do wonder if, if maybe it's different this time. And I know that's the worst thing to ever say on Wall Street. So I don't know. What, how do you see an, an Apple playing out in this, as an example? Sure. No, I, I don't see necessarily um, these, you know, mega cap Tech companies, of course, all reporting this week um, are are going away anytime soon. I think they are dominant. They're they've certainly um, uh, inserted themselves in our daily lives, and I don't think that's going away. In fact, my you know my view is when they get that big and that dominant, the only threat uh, they face is really government. Right? It's government regulation. Of course, we're seeing now Beijing um, cracking down on some of their mega. Uh, mega cap tech companies and, you know, the fallout from that. And, and I would argue, you know, that, you know, Democrats and Republicans here uh, don't agree on much, uh, but I do think they, they do agree that a lot of these mega cap tech companies have probably a little too much power, uh, either political or market power, uh, and probably does need to be checked. But um, aside from that, you're right. I think, you know, fundamentally, they're not going away. My guess is that they may lag uh, just because their valuations have gotten so expensive. And it's last, you know, there are they are they growth companies? Yes. Are they safe havens? Well, in an environment where there's little growth, they are safe havens. They have high quality, high, you know, strong balance sheets, big cash balances. So, you know, they're 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 not certainly the, the fundamentally going away, uh, but that valuation could erode. Mm-hmm. Now, fair, fair point on that. Um, and, and also, of course, you know, where are the best opportunities? And, and you do highlight more of the, I think, more of the value oriented plays like the industrials. What else kind of fits it fits into that call, that theme? Sure. So we launched a strategy. We have a series of we, we create these specialized separate accounts, you know, these portfolios for our clients um, where we think there's some opportunity and legs. And and fourth quarter of last year, you know, in anticipation of reopening, we assembled a portfolio called Quality Dividend, where we, we recognize the value of dividend is going to be important, um, but we also want the persistency. So we want companies, high quality companies that pay a, a good dividend, have strong balance sheets, and have a fair amount of pricing power. Um, you know, so when you look at a J&J or you look at, you know, some of the you know, healthcare names, uh, a, a few of the banks, um, in, in some of the industrial companies, 
um, you know, a Honeywell, that, that kind of thing. Um, that's where we're, we're putting money now. Uh, and we think, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll call it a no news is good news um, portfolio because it's got a yield of, you know, call it two and a half to three uh, and uh, very solid dividends. And, and speaking of yield, um, you know, obviously, you know, a lot of the time I started off the conversation in terms of what the yield environment looks like, the U.S. 10-year yield. And of course, that impacts the, the valuations, as we did discuss. But um, what is your view in terms of where we see the U.S. 10-year yield um, over the next, again, 12 to 16 months, maybe two years out? Is it, is it going to be range bound and will there be some volatility surrounding it? But, you know, that's almost just part of the story of today. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you, the academic in me would say the, 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 uh, the 10-year Treasury yield has to be higher. You know, we have a model that looks at um, uh, copper divided by gold. Uh, and I haven't run it in the last week or two, but I will say a couple of weeks ago, that, that number suggested that the 10-year should be 2.8, not you know, 1.2 or 3. Um, so I think that, you know, clearly the fair value for yields is higher. Um, but I think the practitioner in me says that, okay, yeah, it may be that the 10 year should be a 2.8 or closer to three, but how much of this uh, economy and market can really withstand that before rolling over? So I think we've kind of entered a new phase where you know, we've had low interest rates, aggressively low interest rates for so long, we've now built business structures, investment theses, strategies, um, predicated on this low yield, and that raising that yield could undermine so many structures uh, that it would it would kind of uh, you know cascade on itself. So I think that where you know normally you would say, look, if you've got a you know two and a half percent real GDP growth and another two and a half percent you know sustainable inflation, that would suggest a five percent ten year Treasury, but you know, our market structure won't support that. So I think we, you're right. I think we will trend higher. We'll probably hit up against a higher level uh, limit and kind of roll back down. Um, so I do think it, it could be volatile, and, but I do think the, the trend in yields is, is higher. Do you think, though, to your point about um, yields being too high, that the business environment globally and the markets globally are not prepared for that? I mean, I think we kind of all know that, and that is the biggest fear or a big fear out there. Um, do you think that the policymakers are acutely aware of this? Of course, there's the FOMC uh, meeting today and tomorrow, but do you think that policymakers and governments around the world are just so aware of how dependent they are on lower rates because of the amount of debt that's been created, that that's going to put us in a low rate environment for the next 10 years? Yeah, I mean, I think we've, we've kind of made that bed. Um, and I would say most policymakers are aware of it. I mean, if you look at the Russell 2000 uh, small cap stocks, uh, last time I checked was you know, a few months ago, more than 25% of the companies in the Russell 2000 have not made a profit in five years. Um, if you can't make a profit in you know, 2018 or 19, or even this year, um, you know, I'm not sure what the, the going concern value of the business really is. Um, and so I, I think that you know, there's certainly a solvency issue uh, that if rates don't stay low or continue to go lower, um, you know, that's going to call a lot of business models into question. Um, so I, I do think that, um, you know, even if rates stay where they are and go up slightly, we're going to get some attrition. 
um, mostly in the smaller cap names, both here and internationally. Uh, but um, yeah, I think we've we've entered a low rate environment that it's going to be very, very difficult to get out of. And just to go back to a previous comment in terms of the copper gold ratio, give us a bit of a backdrop as to why you you look at that and do many people still look at it and what's the significance? Sure. So, you know, consider uh, these two commodities, they trade, you know, pretty liquid markets um, where copper is a pro-cyclical commodity, gold, a defensive commodity. Uh, what we have found was um, that ratio has been a very good uh, coincident and, and slightly leading indicator of the 10-year treasury yield. So, um, you know, we've liked it just because it's really, it, it's really been a valuable tool for us. Um, it's only in the last couple of months that it's really diverged away from where uh, where the ten year treasury yield is, I mean, it leads it on the you know, downside and the upside. So it's possible we could see you know copper uh, you know come down and and gold go up and you know and have it come down to meet uh, the ten year treasury yield at, at you know one point two or three. But um, but my sense is that that gap needs to be closed and it will likely be higher yields. Some combination, maybe lower copper and higher yields. Okay. And um, what do you, what do you think of uh, some of the materials these days? Yeah. So uh, we're big, um, you know, we're still investors, uh, big investors in energy. Um, we started the year just saying, you know, energy's cheap and the reopening trade's going to help energy. Uh, that's working out. MLPs in particular energy infrastructure up about 50% year to date. Um, we're probably closer to declaring victory in that one than maybe adding much more to it. Um, you know, we have to, you know, we'll reconvene on that. Uh, we also um, uh, took some equity risk off the table a few months ago, just because valuations and our, again, our view is a seven-year view, uh, we added gold. Um, the, the logic in gold is, is very simple. If financial assets can offer investors uh, a, a yield ahead of inflation, right, in excess of your purchasing power risk, buy, go ahead, buy financial assets. But if financial assets are locking you into a lower standard of living, a lower yield than what inflation can offer, then you ought to own gold because gold has had a long history of at least tracking inflation. In fact, you know, over the last couple of decades, it's been slightly ahead of inflation. But but over the you know long period of time, gold is simply just purchasing power protection. Um, so if you, we're not, you're not going to make a lot of money in gold. Uh, relative to inflation, but at least you'll stay on that escalator. And if financial assets can't get, you know, it, it, that trajectory of their escalator is slower because hey, in this case, the 10-year treasury, more than 1% below the inflation rate or the expected inflation rate, um, you've got overnight rates at, you know, right now, you know, four or 5% below the most recent inflation print, might as well own gold as an alternative to cash. And the fact is, yeah, gold doesn't offer any yield, but neither does neither, neither does cash. So the you know the the opportunity cost of owning gold is is nil. Got it. Um, with respect to gold, what what's how do you like to buy it for your clients? It really depends on um, you know the purpose. So if if you want um, some liquidity, uh, you know, I, I always want some kind of product that's backed by physical gold. Um, so in the exchange traded fund space, there's IAU. I think it's an iShare product. It is backed by physical gold. 
for longer term holders that really want to take a strategic position in gold. Uh, BMO has a uh, Canadian um, gold product that um, can they they can hold uh, in Canada in in a vault in Canada, uh, or they will send it to you and, and you can take delivery of it. But but um, that's obviously physical gold as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jack, uh, you mentioned this uh, in terms of your your view, a seven year view, and you also made the comment at the top saying that, look, if you've got a seven year time horizon or longer, maybe we don't need to worry as much about taking profit off the table. Um, can you just explain that a little bit more? Because I think that a lot of people who follow me, um, you know, depending on where we are in our age and stage of life, but, you know, but wanting to make sure we've got capital. Um, what, what, what's the thinking, thinking in terms of that comment? Sure. So everything uh, that we do at Crescent goes back to goals-based investing. What goals-based investing does is it says, all right, what, what's the cash flow that my client needs from this their portfolio over a period of time. And let's say they're just entering retirement. So maybe they have a 30 to 40 year time horizon. Um, so what we say is let's match the investments with the cash flow that's needed. So of course, if you need money you know, next year, the year after, and maybe out to say seven years, we're gonna have to build uh, a short-term bond income oriented portfolio to match those cash flows. But any cash flow that's seven to say 15 years, we don't need to rely on bonds. We should be able to rely on equities to get to meet those cash flow needs with a seven to 15 year time horizon. And then anything beyond 15 years, uh, we can really look at you know much uh, higher return, higher octane strategies. Uh, we do uh, thematic strategies. We look at private equity. Um, Real, you know, private real estate. So we, we have a whole kind of array of uh, investment tools at our, our uh, disposal and that we just really just try to match the cash flow. So that's why our equity investing, I wouldn't, you know, think about it this way. If I had a cash uh, payment due next year, let's say I had to pay taxes and I needed to set money aside, you know, I don't care how bullish I am on Apple stock. I wouldn't put that money uh, in Apple stock. I wouldn't put it in the S&P 500. Now, I don't know what, what that uh, the portfolio will do between now and the time I need to pay that out. And so I need to, to in order to raise my probability of success of meeting those cash flows, it really comes down to just matching your investments with the, the cash that needs to be paid out. But the dividend, the idea, though, of owning dividend stocks, does that fall into your cash flow Yes. Uh, yeah. So okay. we will. Yeah. Well, we will. Uh, we will take. Uh, ca- you know, yield from private equity. You know, cash flowing private equity. Even though it's it's holding a fifteen year time horizon, we will use cash flow from private equity and real estate to help fund uh, life lifestyles up front. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and it was interesting in your presentation as well. Um, you had different solutions for different risks out there. Um, one of them is the potential of higher taxes. So what, what, what are some of the solutions if, if that's the environment that we're going to be facing? Sure. So, you know, with Biden and the company talking about uh, paying for the infrastructure package, which is still out there, uh, mm-hmm. One of the one of the uh, conclusions was let's double the capital gains tax. So let's take it from twenty to forty. Essentially, um, if that is the case, um, what we find is uh, even if 
the capital gains tax instead goes from 20 to 28. Uh, it still makes sense uh, if you're willing to, um, you know, if you were planning to take money out anytime between now and the next 10 years to go ahead and realize that capital gain in 2021 and then just redeploy it and just essentially raise your cost basis. Um, so th those are some of the break-evens with that. We also have uh, the possibility of converting from, you know, in, in respect to maybe higher current income tax rates, uh, moving from uh, traditional IRAs to Roth IRAs, pay the tax this year, and then get, you know, lifetime tax exemption on those, on those proceeds. We have, we've launched uh, our second now qualified opportunity zone fund, which will take capital gains realized this year and essentially defer them uh, most of the most of that capital gain uh, indefinitely. Uh, so th there are a lot of different tax strategies uh, that are available to investors in the U.S. Um, and we're pretty much on top of most of them. Mm. And you also make the point, I believe, about having separate accounts that your firm offers separate accounts. Is that how you go about investing for your clients? Uh, that's yeah, that's our preference. So what we do is we say, look, you know, from a tax perspective, we're really not big fans of mutual funds uh, it's because longer term holders are forced to pay capital gains, whether they you know, continue to hold or not. Um, so it's in many respects, it's like it's like riding the bus. Right. Your your journey really depends on what other people do and the stops along the way, even though you may be riding for you know, an hour or two. You know, you may have to take stops along the way, and that's you're paying other people's tax liabilities uh, by holding a mutual fund. Um, an exchange traded fund at least gives you the advantage of controlling your own destiny in terms of uh, capital gain. You're only going to pay the capital gain, you know, when you actually exit the fund and, and transact. Uh, but separate accounts actually gives you one more layer, and we create separate accounts for our clients. Um, essentially customize indexes or other strategies where now you can actively take losses. You can, you can go through the portfolio and offset gains and losses or continually generate losses. So now you can actually be out front um, in, in um, your tax strategy and maybe use losses that you use by uh, rotating uh, individual holdings in the, in the separate account and use those to offset gains that you're taking somewhere else in the portfolio. You know, and that's a big distinction. I think that individual investors need to know and, and understand. So I appreciate that comment. Um, do you only have uh, accredited investors? In no, US investors? no, we are. We have we have accounts. We have accounts of all sizes. Um, we actually can take uh, Canadian clients too, um, uh, provided that they're comfortable uh, with the you know all of the the uh, U.S. elements as associated with it. Uh, but um, but yeah, we we are very tax aware, um, and I would say pretty cost effective. And, and really, I, I would say our two value propositions are the goals based investing, where we can pretty much customize a portfolio to lock in your cash flows, uh, and then take whatever's left over to do really interesting other things. Uh, and the other is access to private investing. We have a whole team looking for individual companies, individual buildings, um, different funds that we put together. And then we will also curate different strategies for our clients. So it's a really, really interesting, um, uh, you know, uh, investment uh, opportunity set that we put together. 
Yeah, and you've had such an interesting career, so I'm sure it's the culmination of, of all of that. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I had spent 17 years at BMO, and I love the company. I'm still in touch with everyone there, but I felt that um, about four or five years ago, I realized that private investing was going the way of goals-based investing. Again, creating what I call these, these customized defined benefit programs for our clients. And the ability to do it with a clean slate at a new company with, that we started in 2000, late 2017 to 2018 is much easier than taking a, you know, a 200 year old firm and saying, let's put a stake in the ground and decide we're going to do investing this other way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nothing against Bebo, nothing against, um, you know, how um, the, the large banks invest. Um, but I wanted to be able to, to really try it. That's all. Um, try what I think is uh, proving to be, um, you know, a really clever way of investing for clients, or especially looking for specific cash flows on specific dates. Understood. Um, Jack, it's been great catching up with you. I appreciate um, your time, your thoughts as always. And it's nice to be able to do this in a little bit of a longer format and hear more about Crescent Capital. So thank you. Great. Thank you, Catherine. And good luck with the program. Look forward thank to you. watching it.